0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: This is Jason Rodenbeck with Forging Plowshares, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Paul Axton. We are here to talk about our new course that's coming out, World, Culture, and Religion. And I'll just go ahead and cover the, the description of this course then I want to turn over and let Paul sort of begin describing what that means. And so the goal when we sat down and started talking this through was we wanted a study of world religions, which aims to demonstrate how Christ exposes and defeats the religio-cultural understanding as it exists in several of the world's major religions and cultures, as well as how Christ redirects and completes this understanding. And probably the most important thing to say is, this isn't the typical religion course where we're going to go in and try to take apart what's wrong with all these religions and try to try to prove why ours is the right one. That's at least my understanding of how uh, we were talking about this uh, a little bit ago. Paul, go ahead and, and say what you were, or maybe I'm all, all wet. Tell us a little bit more about
0: the direction of this course. In the initial lectures and weeks of the course, part of the issue is just saying, well, what is religion and culture and how do they interact? And of course, when you go back to a pre-modern or even today, if you travel outside of many Western countries, even in Japan, we'll use Japan a lot as example. For example, in biblical times, religion was not a category apart from everyday life. In fact, there is no, you know, in, in Japanese, shukyo is a word that has a lot of political ramifications because as in the 1800s began to modernize, then the category of what is and what is not religious, especially in the eyes of the West, is going to become very important. Actually, the word religion has the same sort of history. It originally just refers to principles or to people's basic moral orientation. It did not necessarily refer to what we think of today as religion. So anyway, in the beginning of the course, that's the discussion. How do we even begin to talk about religion? And unfortunately, what has happened is that the father of modern religions, who himself, Murcia Eliade, I'm never quite sure how to say his name, I hope that's close, who was both a fascist and anti-Semitic. I think that's important because his depiction of religion as a realm apart is going to open itself to any number of political systems. That is, that he's going to talk about religion as a sui generis experience that cannot be reduced to any particular religious system, but is manifest in the various religious systems. That might accord with many Christians' view. In fact, when I started teaching in a little Bible college here in the United States, I was a little surprised they gave me a book, and, you know, well, in in, uh, evangelicalism, how do you think of religion? I think that many people would agree with Eliade's picture, that it's uh, a kind of sui generis, a realm apart. In Rudolf Otto's picture, a kind of numinous or the holy. In other words, it does not intersect with politics, with economics, with culture with our everyday life. That's all wonderful, except it's not clear what you're studying. If you go and study religion in the university today, most likely it will be under the auspices of the notion that it's a sui generis category. That's the very justification for having religious studies. If it weren't that, why would you have a special department? Well, you would just, you know, Peter Berger, if you would define it in his understanding. Religion is just sociology. It's just an extension of the society and the culture. Once you provoke these sorts of understandings, well, then then you have to turn around and say, well, is there such a thing as, you know, even the word culture, cultus, it kind of fuses our notion of religion and the social order. And that's certainly what you have in the New Testament. That's what you have in most societies is that there is then the fusion of everyday life with a set of beliefs or practices that would be defined as religious. So in the end, when you, when you begin to talk about this, what is it? Is it a belief system? For most people, it's not consciously. In, in the West, We, because of the Reformation and Luther and Calvin's focus on faith per se, We've tended to carry that over into in the Western world into religious studies. But in fact, believing the religion is not front and center in most cultures. It is the practice of the religion. So in Japan, you can just ask anybody, are you religious? It's and there's statistics on it. You know, about eighty percent of the people will say, Well, no, I'm not religious. But do they go to shrines? Do they take their children the particular ages to the, the local shrine do they practice the burial customs of Buddhism uh, pay the Buddhist priest oh sure but those practices are not religious per se I don't know if that gives you a feeling or if I've completely muddied the water here at this point
1: sounds like you're saying that when you go to the university and you're going to get a course in religious studies that most place most folks are going to see that as, a study of, of something that really doesn't have much bearing on the rest of actual life. This is beliefs and deities, or mysticism, and how it affects culture, but it it's not a reality, it's not part of our reality. It, we've moved past that when we're, when we're doing science, and sociology is science, and uh, that we do science, but that's different from religion, when in fact, we do religion all the time.
0: If... Eliade is right that religion is sui generis. Well, first of all, that means that there is no object of study. It's universal, it's completely static, unchanging. It's not historically changing, it's not evolving. It's always just this thing that is completely transcendent. If it's completely transcendent, then we only have partial access to it. You know, you can study the world's religions. And so what you get then is, well, it's sort of like the five blind men and the elephant. You can put together all of your five blind men and their description, and you may still not have an elephant. Any religion that you study, you know, ask some basic question. Does it pertain to the political order? Think of Hinduism, and even, you know, when you begin to use this language, Hinduism is the... Western word for the religions that Westerners discovered in India. All of this gets mixed into the the very definitions of religion. gets mixed into modernity. It gets mixed into colonialism. But as far as I know, there is no religion that doesn't impact economics, culture, politics, or the practices of everyday life. Now, I, I think the objection to that would be, well, don't we in the secular world then, isn't that what secularism is, a realm apart from religion? And that's part of the discussion is to define secularism, where that comes from, what that is, and how that functions. So nationalism is often pictured as a byproduct of secularism. But what I would claim is that nationalism in fact functions in the same way that religion functions, and this is Peter Berger's point, that it is the sacred canopy. In his earlier in his career he's going to talk about religion as the sacred canopy holding the culture or the society together. Well, that's the function of nationalism. So part of the issue here is a little bit just to problematize and say, well, these categories that we imagine we know exactly what they are, we need to step back a minute and say, wait a minute. These categories themselves are giving us a perspective that may not then coincide either with the reality as we, that is there on the ground that we encounter, and the way that we read the New Testament is going to be shaped by our understanding of how we answer the question, what is religion. And so part of this, you know, it's there's already a bleeding over into a particular kind of theological perspective and in Christianity as to how other religions are viewed, because very often we picture Christianity as a realm apart in the modern, secular, nationalistic society. In a sense, it's step one is, okay, let's take these categories and re-examine them. And then we can begin to move on and deal with what these things are that, that we're exam- examining.
1: So let's chase down the relationship of nationalism. And you just finished, uh, you wrote, uh, published a piece last week on January 16 on the Forging Plowshares website called The Problem of Religion and Nationalism. This is an important subject for me in that I've felt like, uh, for a long time, I've, I've felt that uh, nationalism has functioned as a, 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 as a religion, in my experience. And when I've tried to share that with folks, and I've said, look, I, I think that uh, the venerating the flag and pledging allegiance to flag, this, this seems like a form of worship. Folks have, have said, no, I, I don't worship my country, I worship God. That's so why you see these uh, these folks, and they're all sort of reacting to uh, recent uh, controversies about kneeling for the national anthem by saying, "Well, I stand for the flag and I kneel for the cross." In other words, this is how I worship this. This is how I worship that. Well, mm-hmm. folks have responded by saying, "No, I'm not worshiping that. That's what that's my religion. This is my this is my national." affiliation or this is my national allegiance. In the first century, I feel like the the Christians of the first century didn't have to worry about folks making that distinction because to serve the emperor was to worship the emperor. Those two things were more thoroughly seen as fused. Um, In our culture, we've we've got those things separated so that people feel like they can they can worship god and still give allegiance to their empire and see no tension between those things when in fact it seems like what you were saying in your article is no that is worship that is mm-hmm. that is that is functioning as a religion for mm-hmm. you
0: that's it i think it's hard for us to see this you know this over what you're describing is just overtly the case and what can demonstrate that and what i used in the piece was to say in japan when japan wanted to imitate the west they in particular they had in mind great britain and the united states but they were are going to use great britain as their model and they need to to do this because the united states in fact admiral perry had used his gunboats he had Come into Tokyo Bay and said, "Okay, you've been Japan. You've been closed to Western trade and religion, and for 200 years now, we want to trade with you." And so they were forced to confront the West and Western ideology. And so what you have in the 1850s, 1860s, you know, actually it's an ongoing problem. But you have the elites in Tokyo. Saying, okay, we need to in some way duplicate or mirror what the West has so that we can ward off the West. So I think we can almost look at ourselves in the mirror. It's sometimes hard to understand who we are uh, apart from looking in the mirror. And what the Japanese saw was well, what they've done, you know, in England, you've got the king, the king is simultaneously the head of the Anglican Church. Well, let's do that. We'll take the emperor and make him the head of the state ethos. The question is, there is no word. There is the word shukyo, but it's going to take up a different meaning, just as the word religion has come to have a different meaning in English. If they call this thing religion, well, then in the West, and this is part, you know, partly everything they're doing is under the eyes of the colonizers threatening to come in. There are Japanese Christians. And so the Western powers were very concerned with what would happen to these Christians in a, a nation state. And that's what Japan is doing. They're making themselves, they're passing from a kind of tribal, you know, people would have identified themselves according to the tribe or their location but they're incorporating a nation-state in the Meiji Restoration. And the way they're going to do this is to take what we would normally think of as religion, and they're just going to call it State Shinto. And they're going to say, this isn't religion. This is just what it means to be Japanese. All good Japanese people will follow the edicts of understanding that are handed down in State Shinto. They took the religion, and they changed it. They didn't leave Shinto. There is the folk religion, Shinto, that is there all over Japan. But Shinto is not an organized religion, and it's not necessarily coherent that different things are worshipped. So they're going to make it coherent. They're going to make the emperor the center of it, and they're going to tie it to a national ethos. That is how Japan formed its nation state. What you see happening there is what happened, I think, in the West over a much longer period of time, that you take what is basically you know, the idea of a king or a monarch, that he is the God spokesman or the embodiment of the will of God using Romans 13 or various passages, and you take a religious, what is basically a religious understanding or a religious identity, And that then becomes the foundation of the nation-state. So the nation-state is going to do all the things that religion had formerly done, and religion per se is going to be separated out. And in the Meiji constitution, this is specifically pointed out, that religion is a private affair, but state Shinto is a public requirement.
1: (laughs) We can see that. When we say, we believe that Jesus has called us to not bear arms, to die for our enemies, to turn the other cheek, an American Christian might turn to you and say, yes, in my private life or in my personal life, even someone one day said, well, when someone attacks me for my faith, I might do that. But when someone attacks me for my house or when someone attacks me for my country I won't because that's my personal my religion is all about my spiritual journey my spiritual end tell us but that has nothing to do with the real life and my real salvation my real freedom for me salvation in America is freedom that's what we talk about we, these people bring me freedom salvation that those two things have been separated it took a lot longer Because you didn't have, the public has had to make that decision, Mm. as opposed to an emperor.
0: That's it. You can follow in the development, the father of modernity, Rene Descartes, is going to deposit the notion of an inward and outward world. The absolute individual and the privatized notion of self. and So you get all of this in the West, it develops very slowly that are anthropology. All of this, there's a kind of ethos or sensibility that's developed that is, in in a sense, it's, it's squeezed into a very short time in Japan. And in fact, you can do the same thing in Islamic countries, that the impact of modernity, the impact of secularism, it, it's going to play a very similar role. What had happened in the West in terms of understanding of self, is a peculiar historical development. It has nothing to do with Christianity, or it's only, you know, it is a particular interpretation. You get the feeling for this. The issue of peace is very interesting, because that particularly gets people stirred up, because they imagine, well, you can serve the state with your body, but you serve God with your soul, as if you can separate those things out.
1: Right. <laughs> Dualism has uh, a major contribution to that. That's why people don't see any tension between what I consider flag and empire worship and being a Christian. God guts and guns. That there's no tension between mm-hmm. these things.
0: Yeah, yeah, so so that's it. And then once you got this down, I mean, part of what the point of the class is is to go back and say, "Well, wait a minute. We need to look again." at our own understanding, and for for take a simple idea, are you saved? You know, you've got three approaches to answering that question in regard to world religions. There might be the idea of there's an available light. This, strangely, is connected to a very conservative evangelicalism, that all peoples in some way then are given by the means of their own religion or their own place. They're in this understanding that, they can be saved there's again a kind of fallacy here what is salvation in christianity if we imagine that it is by this dualistic system well salvation's going to heaven when i die well then we can talk about well everybody can have access to that but if salvation pertains to the particular teachings joining the particular socio-cultural order that is the church yeah. And taking up such things as the peaceable kingdom or discipleship, love, joy, peace, long suffering, as those are carried out and taught to us yeah. through the the teachings of Christ in the early church, and if that is connected to salvation, can we by any means talk about that thing being available outside the the church? And of course, what I'm what I'm saying is that. Christianity is not something in this realm different than any other religion. When we say in Islam or we say in Buddhism, are you saved? Does that mean the same thing as what we mean by in Christian salvation? No, that would mean for a Buddhist something quite different, nirvana in some way achieving enlightenment. Those are going to be very different categories. And so there is a kind of insult, a kind of flattening out of everything in religious studies. Now, what I'm describing is a practical understanding of all religion, that it is the practice. What we've done in the West is sorted out religious practices from religious belief. That is, we've imagined that in a Protestant understanding that religion is primarily about what you believe, and then we've said religion is about belief. Well, that's a reversal, in fact, of the way that religion functions in the world. Religion is, for the most part, connected with a set of powerful practices, and belief, then, is secondary to that. Of course, the reality is that what we do with our body, is then reflective of a deep-seated belief. And that touches upon, I think, the reality. Can you follow Christ spiritually and not follow him physically? You know, Can you follow him with your soul and not your body, or vice versa? And so there is this kind of disjointed understanding in our discussion even of What is this thing? Once you say it's a practical salvation, then you've realigned the understanding not only of Christianity, I think you, you, but of every religion. Every religion is a set of powerful practices. Well, and I think that is
1: really James' point in New Testament. I think he was beginning to to wrestle or battle with that idea that said, "Well, you know, it's it's what I believe." but not necessarily what I practice. And that's what uh, a conversation I had with a friend recently uh, who's a minister and who was talking with uh, one of the folks in his church about the issue of guns and violence and, and saying, I, I think I can't do guns anymore because my faith in Jesus has made me question all of that again. Of course, the response was, well, guns are my God-given right in other words, God has given us this uh, this right to do violence, this ability to do violence. But my faith in Jesus doesn't have any bearing on that. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe Jesus. Nothing that Jesus said about how to go about living in this world has any real truthfulness to it apart from some esoteric spiritual experience that's going to culminate in me me going to heaven someday as sort of a, a fire escape, a sort of a insurance plan. But that's not reality. And it doesn't imply that I, I ought to be taking care of my neighbor. It doesn't imply that I that I shouldn't be pursuing wealth at the expense of the people around me. And yet James is the one that comes out and says, no, you show me your faith by your belief and I'll show you my faith by what I do. That you can't actually, what you do actually is what you believe in the most. That is a piece I don't know that most folks have appreciated as as well. That what you are doing, all of your actions, Mm -hmm. that is what reveals what you actually believe, period. I feel like that's
0: James's... The yeah. Whole point. You could be a practical atheist and call yourself a Christian.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that seems to me like that's that is a point of discussion that maybe we've come around in a circle to a prior conversation. But we've discovered that many times that you can live your life in a way that has nothing to do with the teaching of Jesus, and yet hold to this as my religion because this religion is separate from. The real world in which I live has nothing to do with the real world in which I live.
0: And I think the dividing thing, and this is the, where the work of Rene Girard comes in, he would make the division in religious myth, religious understanding on the issue of violence. That is that violence is playing a definitive role in sacrificial religion. And he's explaining his theory then explains how it is that sacrifice and a reading of sacrifice as the ultimate religious act is key to understanding the development of, you know, two things you can say about every religion, every culture is that in some way it's developed in connection to sacrifice. Now, this is true of Judaism, but what I would say about Judaism is that there there is a difference. But certainly, by the time you get to Christianity, uh, and this is Gerard's reading, is what sets what Christ is doing apart from what anyone else has done prior to this is an exposure of what is called the scapegoating mechanism, violence, and the control, regulation, ordering of society around the controlled sacrificial role of religion in violence or religious myth is key to understanding every religion, including the uh, development of the Judeo-Christian understanding. In other words, what is it that Christ is doing? One way of answering that is to say that Christ is addressing the issue of human religion as it develops around the problem of, of violence and sacrificial violence.
1: And the ones who followed Jesus immediately thereafter found themselves unable to participate in the nation as, uh, as good citizens, because they were living a very different kind of called-out kingdom life.
0: Let me give you an example, that the way that nationalism confused with religion. In Japan, there is a place called the Yasukuni Shrine. And the Yasukuni Shrine is a national shrine in which soldiers who have died in wars are enshrined. They are worshipped. This is a fairly common idea that the sacrifice that one makes for the nation-state, even in the modern period, is a religious sacrifice. In Japan, there's no hesitation that that the whole government goes to Yasukuni Shrine and prays to the souls, not for, but to, and that this is a necessary part. In fact, every prime minister uh, in the post-war period has gone to Yasukuni Shrine. If you go back to the samurai, how does one achieve ultimate service to his master? Well, ultimately, it's always a question whether you you know you've pursued final loyalty apart from dying, and so you achieve a kind of static pantheon. Once you've entered into the pantheon of the gods, you have you've made the ultimate sacrifice. You achieve the religious heights. So that religion or or sacrifice, whether it's called religion or not, is then the way in which war is enacted, you know, World War II, for example, for Japanese, was very much a religious war on behalf of the emperor. Now, that's not so so far apart from any sacrificial religion. Who were the Aztecs sacrificing? Well, they were sacrificing enemy combatants or people that in, in some way challenged them, so that the violence and the overcoming of the enemy and dying on behalf of the tribe or people is then the ultimate religious act so that controlled violence is very much integrated into the religion there is a reading of the new testament that puts all of this upon god and says that god then is the one who requires sacrifice he requires the sacrifice of Christ in some way to solve his internal violence problem. There is a kind of original violence posited, a kind of original chaos. And out of the chaos, there is uh, there develops harmony only on the basis of a sacrifice to the violence. So that's a world. That is the world that Christ intervenes in, disrupts, and overturns. We do not begin with an original chaos and originary violence, but we begin with a God who is peace, a God who is love, a God who is goodness. Those are not unimportant. Those are key to an understanding of the Father of Christ and an understanding then of the sacrifice of Christ.
1: Something you just said that I, I want to restate, you said that's a world. And as you're talking about Japan and the dead who have become a deity, my mind was swirling around um, Arlington and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And it, even when my daughter graduated from high school, I was saddened uh, at, the, at the ceremony. They, they were talking about all these students that had all these wonderful grades that were going on to do all these wonderful schools, and some of them were going on mm-hmm. to wonderful uh, training for, for work, and they, they talked about the future of these students, and they have such a bright future because of what they've accomplished, and all that's well and good, and certainly some students there had just accomplished amazing Things and then they brought up all the students that were going on into the military, and we all stood up and gave them a standing ovation because these are the folks who are who are going on to be our saviors. And this struck me as being a very different uh, thing to cheer for and to, and to honor. And there was a sort of hush about that. So you said, you know, that's a world. Instead of uh, Jesus comes to save us to somewhere else, Jesus has come to instate a different world. Jesus is come to to give us a new world. Maybe that's a better way of thinking about the the word kingdom. It's a whole new world that sees him as the source. He's the beginning and the end.
0: Right. Like in John. Right. Yeah, that's what John's depicting. He's depicting a cosmic new beginning, that uh, there is a creation in the beginning. And with Christ, there is the recreation. The word that was in that original beginning is here once again, and the world is being recreated. We've got, an, and the word is cosmos. The cosmos is being reordered. Everything is being changed, and I think this touches upon the deep grammar of the change.
1: So then, religion, or what what has come to be called religion, is an attempt to to relegate that. When we call it religion, that's a way of sort of making a place for that, what should be the world, that we see this is the world, and that Caesar is not the world, a false world. But it's a way of taking that, taking Jesus, and sort of making him subservient to something that could be sort of done alongside of the actual real world that we live in, that requires us to continue to do to be violent, and you know, we go to violence a lot, but violence encompasses quite a bit. I mean, it encompasses our economy is a violent economy. In order to be successful in this economy, we have to continue to do, to do violence. So, mm-hmm. keeping Jesus' world as a as a sort of uh, and keeping it in its place, so that we can get on about the business of economies. And security and the things that, that, are, that we really have to do in order to ensure survival.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's it that, you know, when you talk about peace, it's just too impractical. And of course, what you're doing, the, the reason violence or nonviolence touches upon this deep grammar. I think you've said it, is that because this is grounded in an understanding that makes violence a necessity, that is, there's a kind of an original chaos to it, but every situation poses itself as logically that this is just the alternatives that are posed. Once you see that violence, in a sense, just covers everything, the economy, the religion, the human identity, a cosmic even understanding, an ontology. And you understand that peace, then, is the alternative world that Christ is introducing. That this, then, gets at the radical nature of peaceableness of of the kingdom of Christ. That is the difference, that exposing scapegoating, exposing religious sacrifice— Exposing the key role, and this is Gerard's great discovery, that he just sees this as structuring literature. He sees it structuring religious myth. It is the role of racial, national boundaries. So once you once you see that, and, and what he's saying is well, Christ addresses all that. Whether you say that Gerard is a sufficient or exhaustive explanation. Certainly, he is a, a support for an understanding, an alternative understanding of the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ.
1: So, tell us a little bit then, specifically about. Uh, we obviously we've talked about the, the subject matter of the course, but um, will you be exploring any of Gerard? Uh, what kind of uh, work? Uh,
0: what I would actually like to do is go back and read Raymond Schwager. And read portions of Swagger. Swagger is the one. He's the the one who has taken Gerard and set him in a specifically New Testament Christian place. And Gerard and Swagger were very much in conversation. So we'll read Gerard and especially apply him as he as it function as he functions in the New Testament. And then once you do this, this is a kind of entry point into a a very different, into what is called Orientalism. Orientalism is a discourse in which much of religious study takes place. It's not simply about the East or about the Orient, but of course the Occident, East-West is Orient-Occident. This is the way that we divide the world up once you understand that this identity through difference is the way that people do identity, not simply personally, not simply nationally, but actually studies of the world, what is the uh, a particular place, it's going to be filtered through the lens of Orientalism. This is very much the way that Islam is understood. This is very much the way that places like Japan or East Asia. But it, understand that it's not simply that, it's also then the way that our own understanding of our own history is grounded. Edward Said is, in a kind of postmodern sense, begins to un, undo the colonial aspect of Orientalism. I think that sort of violence, that sort of positing of world differences, we can begin to deconstruct that huge understanding of how we filter the world. I believe that's not disconnected. Most people don't make that connection. But I think it's very much interwoven then with the usual role of religious myth and the way that we, in fact, have kind of bought into a mythical understanding of both East and West. So would you say
1: that the that students that take the course are they're going to walk away seeing their faith as a thing that is not just not just informing their personal life? I mean, and this is a conversation I had with my brother-in-law this weekend. We were talking about Christianity and and, and what church uh, has meant and he said, "You know, I've been to some churches where Christianity is not much more. We, we go to church because it makes us feel better about things, makes us feel more whole in our personal lives. That we have these sort of warm fuzzy feelings about it. It, it doesn't really tell us about how to live in the real world. But that Christianity is a whole world lifestyle that that is there is a different way of taking in the whole world and, and interacting with the whole world and living. In the whole
0: world you know once you begin to un- undo this you're, you're absolutely right that it just pertains to everything our understanding our reading of history our reading of sociology i've done a lot of course with psychology and all of this inter- is integrated into a kind of psychology of self again it's it is always the positing of a different order you know the other Well, the Eastern Other has played a key role. It's most obvious at this point in time that Orientalism has a grip on us in our picture of how Islam in some way, or the Muslim world, or radical Islam, has become the number one enemy. And so to understand our modern setting, apart from the development of the long history of the positing of the, the Orient, the East-West divide. As we're describing this, I hope people recognize that, well, the Bible is written in the Orient. It's not written in the Occident. But, of course, the way that we would read that is to say, yes, but isn't it that the movement from East to West in the evangelism of Paul, isn't that the way that progress moves? And so that as you move west you come closer to the kingdom. Progress then is speeding up, or it's coming to you know the city set on the hill, of course, which is the city that's furthest west. And so that to travel eastward is to, in some way, go backward in time to a more primitive people, a more primitive kind of uh, understanding. And as you go west, then I, you get the prejudice. I mean, once you state it like that, but that has saturated uh everything. And so violence, you know, what is that violent? Well, yeah, that's literally uh the reason gives rise then to the modern warf- wars that we we've involved ourselves in.
1: I was uh reflecting on my church history classes when I was um, a student and cuz I, I believe you had written another piece, which I also think belongs in the course, hopefully you will use it, on being in a new Dark Ages, uh, or return to the Dark Ages, in that uh, we would study the uh, uh, Crusades, and I remember students saying, how could they think that Jesus would would be wanting us to go to war with Muslims? Mm -hmm. I mean, shouldn't we be, I mean, even in, in a more crude understanding, shouldn't we be trying to go and save them or uh you know get them to go to heaven too. Well, we're right back in that now where <laughs> the Muslims are the enemy and we've got to go and kill them, they're all evil. It strikes me that as we talk about the way religion functions and the way the state functions that we're really we're not far removed at all from that from the darkest periods in history. In fact, we may We may be just completely replaying them over and over and over again.
0: The clash is depicted then as a clash between civilizations, a clash between two religions, as if Christianity constitutes itself and will redeem itself in and through a literal war with a literal other, or Islam in this instance. Yeah, that that is the dark ages. That's what's meant by, you know, the dark ages is that they literally set out in the crusade to convert through the sword. That wasn't originally a muslim idea, that was originally a christian idea. It was the foundation of just war theory. If you trace just war theory back, it actually originates in Augustine, who is describing, you know, what the necessities of dealing with heretics and justifying the use of physical force. Well, it wasn't very long. It wasn't Augustine himself then. That this then is applied in general. Well, what's better that a man lose his soul or that he loses his body? It's better that he should die at the hands of the Christian victor and perhaps his soul be saved than that we not do this necessary event you get the point that in other words Christian colonialism, the crusades literally were a mode of conversion that give rise to violence, it's almost like we've entered into that period again that we're positing the world and an understanding of our own faith and the faith of others in a very literal Dark Ages kind of depiction.
1: Some of the irony of studying the Dark Ages and the Crusades, yeah, it was the Christians who said, let's go make war on the Muslims and we'll convert them or kill them or both, but also ended up having wars with each other with which to fund their wars against the Muslims. And so uh, when a king is marching his army to and from, he may even be attacking other Christian cities to uh, feed his his army. It almost sort of, in my mind, became violence, uh, almost for violence sake. No matter what we did, we were doing it for for God, under the banner of Christ. Um, You can do almost anything under the banner of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's it. I think that's it.
1: Anything else you'd like to, to throw in about the class, sort of in preparation to get get folks uh, excited about it? Um, we're hoping to have this thing done fairly soon, uh, in early February, if I if I recall correctly. Does that seem right?
0: Open registration the 27th of January in that week, and then uh, and then the next Monday, February 3rd, we can we will start the class, and you can register the week before. In uh, the end of January
1: Well it sounds wonderful It sounds like it's really right in line with the other, All the other courses we've done, especially I, I feel like the last course as we focus so much on what it means to live in this world and to see Christ as establishing his kingdom, his way of life on this world, as in restoring this world. It sounds like what we're doing here in the religion class is saying religion as something other than how life is done on this world is false. That is uh, the way the kingdoms of this world would have us see it, but in fact, what What Jesus has come to do is institute God's reign here and institute a different cosmos, a a different world that is subversive to this world's kingdoms. In a way, what we're doing is what we've kind of always been doing. It's, It's just ways of saying it in these different contexts and in using these different pieces of language. In this case, we're exploring religion itself. And I assume that that means also exploring some of the language of different religions, perhaps seeing I think especially with Japan your experiences in Japan and the keen insights that that's given us on our own, our own culture, the cultures of other folks who are listening um, in other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll use Japan. We'll use a very different view of Islam. We'll look at Hinduism and Buddhism in, in a very different light. I think, than they're usually studied. So kind of the broad categories then make a very big difference as to even how we view what's taking place in these individual traditions.
1: Awesome. Well, it sounds amazing. Looking forward to it, and uh, hopefully we've got, uh, we'll have got we have quite a bit of, of interest. Thank you, Paul.
0: I'm excited. Thank you, Jason. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting ForgingPlowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash Paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org
0: slash donate.